Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek and letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Hope you are well and safe. Coming up on our program today, we'll be talking about the HEROES Act proposal coming out of the House. A lot in there for agriculture. A lot of things in there that uh, have a lot of people concerned as well. But from an agricultural standpoint, it does address some uh, key areas of need. We'll talk about one of those, the biofuels industry. We'll be talking with Kurt Kavarik, the Vice President of Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Also, we'll be taking a look at yesterday's WASD numbers and talking markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Economist with INTL FC Stone. And we'll be going over the latest ag equipment sales numbers with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. So a lot going on here at Midweek. But uh, we're going to start things off looking at the, uh, the the meat industry, the reopening of packing plants. Joining us now is Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns & Associates. Steve, thanks for joining us once again. Where are we as far as having plants back up online, at least in some capacity? Well, on the fork side, and that's what I'm most familiar with, Mike, is uh, we're back up. Uh, we have all the plants open as of uh, Monday, and uh, we're about 26%, 26.5% still idle capacity yesterday. That's down from a high of 44 uh, a week and a day before that. So uh, we're certainly making some progress, and that's probably, that's actually kind of faster progress than I really expected us to make on this. So. Uh, I mean, that's all encouraging. We're still, the, that, the trouble is that means still about one in four spaces are still uh, still not available to handle hogs, and so we're still backing up a good number of hogs uh, every day. We're probably going to get uh, about two million harvested this week, a little over. Um, so that is another kind of milestone, but um, my calculations say that we probably have 2.45 million or something like that um out there that were uh going to be ready to be harvested this week so backing up another 450,000 that's going to put us well over 2 million hogs backed up the last 4 weeks okay so that's the point that's what i was wanting to know even with the plants opening and it's certainly helping we still have a backlog yeah yeah the first rule of getting out of a hole is stop digging mike and um we're not stopping digging because we haven't got enough plants open to handle the hogs that were ready to come. I mean, those hogs, you know, were put on feed several months ago. And, um, you know, as, as and I, I try to predict this uh, on, a, on a weekly basis based on uh, historical sow herds, historical fairlings, historical litter size, growth rates, and those kinds of things. And uh, my calculations are that, you know, we've got about 2.4, 2.45 million of them uh, in the barns ready to come to market every week here for the next five, six, eight weeks, uh, except for the holidays, of course. And, and um, uh, if we don't get those slaughtered, then they get backed up. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's getting to a critical point now uh, of getting them moved. And I, I just, as, a, as an industry, I can't give us much hope for that. Uh, I, you know, for individual situations, you know, some producers may have some hogs backed up in barns and they've got a spot at the packer next week for them, and that's wonderful. I hope that happens, but uh, collectively, it can't happen. We just don't have enough places to slaughter the animals that are coming this week, much less the ones that have been backed up for three weeks. 
Do we have any idea of how many hogs have been euthanized? No, we don't. That's uh, a number that we really, uh, it's hard to get a handle on. Um, you know, uh, nobody has to report that necessarily. Uh, there are some environmental issues that might uh, cause some reporting on state-by-state basis uh, as far as disposal goes, but uh, not. There's no, we don't really know that. I'm trying to kind of get that done. I've got a few contacts out there that I'm trying to convene once a week and get an idea on it, but I don't think we have a good number of that. There's been more of the baby pigs, wing pigs, uh, aborted litters, I think, more of that than than the big hogs, and you would expect that from two or three standpoints. Number one is you don't have as much sunk capital in those pigs. Number two is it's much, much easier to dispose of them. I mean, composting really works well there. And composting works well for the big hogs, but they're just lots more biomass to handle. So uh, I think there's more of that. So I think we're kind of getting ourselves in line for the fourth quarter that uh, we won't, you know, we're going to be, we're probably not getting back to full capacity. And so I think we're kind of getting ourselves lined up a little better for that, but uh, that doesn't solve the immediate problems. From a consumer standpoint, should we start seeing a better flow of pork back into grocery stores? Well, yeah, if you go from 40% down on slaughter capacity to 26, you're going to get more product. Um, so that's that's a positive. So we should see some of that happen. I mean, we had a cutout value of $116 the day before yesterday. It backed off a little yesterday, but still huge cutout values. And and uh, I I think I don't think those are being put through to retail prices yet uh retailers serve as the kind of the shock absorber in this system they don't like to change their prices either up or down and so um when the wholesale price moves they usually tow the line for a while um if this starts backing off a bit and we start getting more product into the channels uh, i think we're probably going to keep retail prices kind of steady and i don't know that consumers are going to see a lot of difference in the cost of pork out there Right now, we'd like to have it more available to them in a lot of spots because uh, I know in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where I live, uh, there's not a lot of fresh pork in any of the stores around here. And and a lot of that is really determined by who is the supply arrangement with. I mean, if these stores buy from one of the packers that's had some real problems, then they can't get product. There are some packers that haven't had much, so their customers probably have plenty of supply. So it's going to be very spotty. Uh, we should see less of it going on as we go forward here, especially if we can keep this this uh, idle capacity number going down. Um, it's also encouraging that we haven't had a lot of setbacks in these plants, a few. Uh, you know, I was very concerned about, you know, well, we'll blow up uh, the coronavirus again and have to shut the plant back down. We haven't had any of that yet. Um, uh, you know, we have one plant, kind of a, an observation of one in Columbus Junction that is back up pretty much full. And uh, that's encouraging. I I don't expect that to be the case for every plant. I think we're going to be short of our previous capacity when we get everybody back up running uh, just because they've had to change ways that they do things in the plant and probably lost a little bit of throughput. Yeah, something to keep an eye on for sure. One other note in this proposal uh, from the House right now, the HEROES Act, that bill would compensate producers who have to dispose of livestock and poultry that can't be sold because of the uh, the backlog and the processing disruptions. But we'll see what happens with uh, this bill and this proposal. It has a long ways to go. All right, uh, Steve, thank you for the update. We'll stay in touch. Take care. 
We will, Mike. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates, and even, as he said, even with the plants back up and going, we still have that backlog of hogs as much as 450,000 head to work through. All right. Up next, we'll talk with Kurt Kavark with the National Biodiesel Board. A lot in this HEROES Act for the biofuels industry. We'll talk about that next here on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the HEROES Act uh, coming out of the House, will be voted on this week, has a lot in it for agriculture. We should point out this bill has a, a lot in it that uh, many are not happy with and would face will face some tough uh, headwinds in the Senate. So it's far from a done deal, but no doubt probably the final package will have some of these things in it and hopefully some of the things that are there for agriculture and in particular we look now at the biofuels industry that has been left out of assistance packages so far but is certainly included in this one joining us now is kurt kavarik vice president federal affairs for the national biodiesel board kurt thanks for joining us specifically what's in there for the biofuels industry yeah glad to be with you mike Uh, This package, as you said, is the first one that Congress has put together that acknowledges and responds to uh, the crisis that's going on uh, within the biofuels industry. Specifically, it includes includes, uh, a direct payment to uh, ethanol, biodiesel, and other uh, renewable fuels producers based on their production uh, from the first four months of this year, which is just kind of used as a, a gauge to, to help measure uh, that assistance. So it's equal to 45 cents per gallon for any gallons produced uh, January through uh, May 1st. So this is an enormous uh, lifeline to the biofuels uh, industry. Uh, ethanol obviously is, is suffering uh, from significant uh, demand destruction down 50%, whereas uh, diesel and biodiesel might be down uh, in the neighborhood of 20%. But we're still dealing with significant supply disruptions uh, all across the, the supply chain and the feedstock chain. So this is welcome news for those producers who are struggling uh, either to find feedstock or for markets for their fuel. I mentioned that there are things in the bill that uh, a lot of people have uh, concerns with. I've looked at some of those things. I have concerns with them too. Uh, but I'm happy for the agricultural part of it and wondering if how strongly do you feel when this goes to the Senate, and they're going to obviously make some changes, some significant changes, uh, how strongly do you feel that the, the ag components, and in your case especially the biofuels component, will be in a final package? Well, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I know that there is significant support uh, in the House as demonstrated by this bill, and in the Senate. You've, you've heard a lot of uh, Midwestern senators talking about 
the need to fully address the livestock issue, the pork issue, as you just heard, um, through uh, Commodity Credit Corporation and other means through USDA. I think there's recognition that what they've done so far has been helpful, but it doesn't go far enough. But as you said, uh, this is a $3 trillion bill. There's a, there's a lot in here. You've, you've probably heard already uh, messaging from the Senate Majority Leader that, you know, they put $3 trillion into the economy. They prefer to take a pause before uh, spending a, a significant amount of additional money. So I think this is a good starting point. It's better. It's always better to be in uh, the first iteration of a, of a package like this than not. But there's going to be a lot of conversation that needs to take place both across uh, the Capitol with the Senate and then obviously with the White House as well in terms of what they're willing to tolerate in terms of size and scope of the next package. And all yeah, of that I, lends itself to this is not going to be a quick and easy uh, process. Right. So this could this could be a June exercise rather than uh, something that can get done in the next week or two. Right. It's going to take a while. Uh, you know, I feel strongly about assistance directly tied uh, to uh, things that have been impacted by COVID-19. I don't like money being spent on other things, you know, that, that get put into bills like this. But I think in, in agriculture's case, and certainly in, in the biofuels industry's case, you can point direct causation, right, to COVID-19 for the for the issues that you're dealing with. That's exactly right. I mean, if you look at um, the biodiesel industry, we not only have a loss of demand because of uh, stay-at-home orders, obviously, is affecting uh, consumer miles driven and, and things of that nature. But almost more challenging for our industry is dealing with uh, the feedstock supply chain issues. So, you know, we're, we're a, div- a diverse product produced from uh, byproduct uh, waste and oils and fats. Uh, soybean oil might be the simplest and re- most readily available. But right now, we're, you know, if, you, if you're a producer on the coast and you produce primarily from used cooking oil, and 90% of restaurants aren't producing or there's no commercial food production, you, you, your feedstock is just dried up. The same is true uh, if you're dependent upon distiller's corn oil from an ethanol plant down the road that is now shut in because their demand is offline. Or as, as your previous guest talked about the, the reduction in slaughter, we, we have a lot of uh, producers who use waste animal fats from rendering facilities and, and uh, uh, meat processing plants as their feedstock. So we're not only dealing with the disruption on the demand side for the fuel, but a significant disruption uh, in terms of feedstock availability. So that's why this kind of a measure from Congress is important to make sure that these producers remain viable, because if, if they go under and go out of business uh, and no longer have that value add to the waste animal fats or um, uh, soybean oil, that means that protein just got more expensive, whether it's for the livestock producer, or whether it's for the end consumer. The value that we add to the to the byproduct oil uh, reduces the cost of the protein uh, to the to that customer. So those prices would necessarily have to increase um, if we no longer add value to the oil. We're talking with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, we hear a lot about ethanol plants idled because of uh, COVID nineteen and the the you know, the lack of uh, demand for for fuels uh, as people aren't driving as much, although that does seem to be picking up some now. Uh, what's the situation with biodiesel plants? Uh, how much of your production now is offline? Well, we've got eight plants for sure that are that remain offline. The economics does, doesn't make sense for them to come back online. 
And unfortunately, we've got a handful of smaller uh, plants further out from the Midwest that are that are suffering under these economics. So they're greatly reduced capacity and perhaps coming offline. Um, so I, I can't tell you specifically what the what the capacity is right now in, in the industry, but it's it's nowhere near um, uh, where where we could have been or where we perhaps were in, in January. We'll we'll get the numbers from. Uh, Department of Energy and, and uh, EPA shortly that give us an idea, but it's certainly down at least 20 to 30 percent, if not more than that. I keep thinking back to the beginning of this year, the the excitement, the optimism for your industry to get the tax credit back, and it, it looked like this was going to be a big year, and then along comes uh, the coronavirus. Along comes the coronavirus, along comes a, a crude oil price war between uh, Russia and, and Saudi Arabia. I, I'm with you. I, I was looking at this year as being a great uh, uh, ramp for the industry with multi years of certainty in the in the tax credit. We just had a good win on the on our trade cases against uh, dumped and subsidized Argentinian product, uh, and then to have this, I'm hopeful that we can get the health crisis behind us. We can have uh, leadership both at the national and state levels to to reopen the economy in a in a sensible way. That, that gives confidence to individuals so they can get back to work, get back to uh, normal life, and our economy will pick back up again. So I'm, I'm hopeful of that, and I, I look forward to when it happens because I know there are great things ahead for this biodiesel industry. I mentioned we're starting to see kind of an uptick uh, in in driving and in fuel demand and oil prices. How long of recovery do you see this for the biodiesel industry? It looks like it's going to take a while. It could take a while. I, I think, at least in terms of the diesel demand, it hasn't dropped off too sharply, and I would anticipate that that would probably be the, the, the quickest to turn around. However, you know, a lot of the same refiners that produce um, diesel fuel also produce jet fuel, and jet fuel is off by 70 or 80 percent, and that's not likely to come back for perhaps many years. So we could have a prolonged kind of oversupply in the distillate market as a result of uh, the, the lack of demand for jet fuel, which would depress prices. Um, but, you know, it, it, it really depends on how quickly the economy bounces back. I mean, 20 million unemployed, how quickly do those folks uh, get back into the, into the labor force as a result of this? Will it take, um, you know, six months or will it take six years? That, I think our, our future depends more on that than it does on necessarily on the, on the price of crude oil. And that's still a big unknown at this point for sure. Kurt, thank you so much for the update. We appreciate it, and we'll be watching to see uh, where this HEROES Act goes from here. Thank you. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you, sir. Take care. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. So we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, again, a lot of things in this HEROES Act beyond the agricultural part of it and a lot of things that have people concerned. And I know that uh, those in the Senate, especially the Republican leadership, have some real concerns with it. So there'll be changes made. But hopefully, whatever they come up with, and they'll probably come up with something, a uh, final bill, hopefully some of these uh, assistance items for agriculture, which are much needed and can be directly related back to the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis, Hopefully they'll still be in that final package. We will see. Up next, we'll talk WASDE report and more with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone on AOA. This is a call for all farmers to come to the aid of their beans. Liberty Herbicide can now be applied on your Enlist E3 soybeans. 
superior weed control, greater application flexibility, no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Liberty Herbicide battles tough weeds so your beans can live free and grow healthy. Talk to your BASF rep to learn more. Always read and follow label directions. Liberty is a registered trademark of BASF and List E3 is a trademark of Dow AgroSciences. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Lots to talk about with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's uh, talk about yesterday's WASDE numbers. What stood out to you? Uh, several things. A lot of surprises in it, which you would expect with so much new data coming in, but really didn't change the direction of the tone of the markets in any way, shape, or form. Uh, USDA really bloating the corn and wheat uh, global balance sheets. Uh, but coming in a little bit smaller on uh, the corn domestic balance sheet, which was an interesting dynamic, um, being very optimistic on demand on the on the soybean side, particularly with China, and I think missing out on some dynamics that we're seeing happening there. And so larger corn and wheat global stocks and smaller soybean stocks than expected, but uh, no fear of shortages anytime soon, and so the markets are still under pressure. Yeah, the China situation changes day-to-day, doesn't it? It really does. We do see China moving forward and making some purchases. Um, and how much of, you know, what is the cause of that? There's several different factors at play. One of them is I believe that they have incentive to try to follow the and keep their commitments with the Phase 1 trade agreement because they're taking a lot of heat right now from the world community. And that is one positive thing that they can do to try to distract from the negativity is to keep that commitment to make those purchases. Second of all, prices are really cheap right now, as farmers here in the United States know. And so they see this opportunity to buy U.S. commodities at a time when they are very cheap. Third, the coronavirus uh, thing really shifted the the dynamics inside of China a little bit more. There's kind of the two different camps in the leadership of China. One was saying, you know, we need to move away from these expensive big reserves of trying to maintain grain and storage and uh, start relying more on trade. And, the, and they really had the upper hand previously. And the other camp was, no, we need to have these big reserves so we're never dependent on anyone. Well, coronavirus kind of flipped the pendulum back to them. So they have a chance now to build the reserves back up, buying cheap grain. For example, U.S. corn is a buck fifty to two dollars cheaper than Chinese corn, so they can fill their reserves up with that if they so choose. Soybeans, very similar type of dynamics. Um, and, the, and the final dynamic that's at work here is that they expect the rest of the world to have the same problems with the coronavirus that they had. In other words, when the coronavirus hit them, they totally shut down. We think we're shut down. They totally shut down. And that meant their ports totally shut down. And they still expect, There's our Shanghai office says there are stories nearly every day talking about the fear of shortages, of food shortages, if ports around the world shut down and they won't be able to import. So they're kind of hoarding supplies right now in the export market, um, trying to get things in so there's no uh, future shortages. So that all fits well with them buying 
uh, all those factors coming together and, and why we are seeing some of that demand. But that doesn't mean that consumption has increased there. And I think USDA misinterpreted all the soybeans that they're currently importing from Brazil as increased consumption and therefore the smaller world stocks. There's also the political rhetoric back and forth between the two over COVID-19, and you never know when that kind of uh, throws the train off the tracks when it comes to trade. High risk, exactly. And uh, we've been through a few years of now high risk, and it just kind of continues. You never know when a, a, a headline or tweet is going to totally turn the dynamics of the marketplace. Um, right now, and I believe that there is a battling dynamic within the Communist Party leadership in China. That leadership is made up of a group of, of 400 past, president, and future leaders in training, and then it has a smaller group of 50 that I think is where that power really kind of concentrates, and then a smaller yet group of seven of which President Xi is a member of that. But I think it's within that group of 50 that we're seeing this battle between the hardliners and the reformers. And the hardliners blew things up in the trade talks a year ago. Um, they're not happy with the phase one as President C kind of got the momentum as a, for the reformers and signed the phase one deal January 15th. And now with all the criticism that we are landing and Australia is landing at China's doorstep, the hardliners are really increasing their cry uh, to come back and be hard on the United States. And so President C is really in a tough spot trying to maintain a balance between the two and keep things moving. And where that tipping point is, uh, we really don't know. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone. Arlen, let's look at the planting progress here. Uh, big numbers, a uh, lot in the ground now, way ahead of last year. Now, we know there are areas like North Dakota, they may be looking at a lot of prevent plant acres again this year. Uh, but overall, the numbers are up. Does that put even more pressure on the markets? It does, because the market is going to assume that uh, rapid planting can increase acres and help yields. And so that's the assumption that's going on. I think there's still a general expectation on yesterday's acreage numbers, the highest we're going to see for corn, um, but yet we're probably going to see lower, uh, excuse me, higher soybean acreage. And I think that's probably a big reason why the market reacted as it did um, yesterday of rallying despite really bearish numbers for the corn balance sheet uh, is that we didn't see any worse numbers but and they expect that this may be to be the highest production number that we're going to see and on soybeans of course the market liked the smaller than expected global stocks number but um, yeah um, you get rapid planting that tends to help the dynamics for a good crop what about uh, the situation, the crop in South America, and uh, what we see there from a, a competitive pressure standpoint on the market? I see some encouraging signs for us, not for them. The Safrina corn crop in Brazil, the southern half has been particularly dry with very little rain over the last six weeks. Um, if you look at the southern half of the belt, about 50%, as I talked to our people there yesterday, about 50% of that corn is now in the early grain fill stage. The other 50% is in earlier or lesser maturity levels, so vulnerable to damage. They've been hot. Um, in, in, well, 
frankly, the temperatures have gone back and forth between mild and hot, but they've had periods of heat along with that dryness, and their soils are not very forgiving. So we are expecting some lower production estimates coming out of the south. And frankly, that dryness has spread over the entire belt over the last week or two. Um, showers were expected to come last week dried up didn't come. They're expected to come here over the next few days, but now they're starting to dial those back up. And uh, again, we expect about half of, half of the dry areas to not get the relief that they need. And you know, drought tends to beget drought and, until you finally get a big rain to come through and break that. Um, and that's also playing into their getting their wheat crop planted, their winter wheat crop planted as well kind of slowing things up a little bit, but it's still early, still have some time. But I do expect to see reductions to free corn production. We just don't know how much yet. And that should directly boost U.S. corn exports. For farmers with old crops still in the bend, wondering when's going to be a good chance to finally move it, what do you think? Well, when you have projections for a 3.3 billion bushel um, carry out in the coming year, that becomes the focus of the market. That doesn't mean that there's not rallies at times because uh, the funds don't make money in a stagnant market. They look for excuses to create a little bit of movement. But it does mean that the expectations of the scope of that movement do change. And so you have to be um, prepared for smaller rallies when they do come. Uh, we typically would anticipate some type of a weather rally ahead of the pollination period as they're looking toward weather and putting in some weather risk. It would not be in that, so that would generally be in June as the forecasts look ahead in July. And then as we get into the 4th of July, if the forecast is hot, dry, and slipping into La Nina um, coming out of the 4th, then a bigger rally. And if it looks favorable coming out of the 4th, then oftentimes it is over. So that becomes a very pivotal time uh, for the marketplace from a historical standpoint. One of the keys that we're watching is it does look like we are going to transition into La Nina this summer, probably sometime in July. Then the other question is, is what are sea surface temperatures doing off the west coast of North America, uh, off the west coast of Canada, and then off the Baja of California. If they stay mild, then that still tends to overwhelm the La Nina, and we still tend to have good precipitation um, in the Midwest. If they turn cold relative to normal, then that tends to set up a high pressure somewhere in the Midwest and we get hot, dry conditions and then you can start losing production pretty fast. So that's going to be the key. We have seen some cooling in those waters over the past week, but the models are still expecting them at this point to stay mild to warm. That's going to be the key to watch here over the next six weeks or so. Yeah, we start changing our focus from planting to uh, uh, crop conditions and and we know that already uh there are you know the, the planting is not done yet some replanting is going on but we're starting to make that transition into concerns about the, the conditions for the crop that's uh, that's coming up so it'd be interesting to watch all right as always thank you uh, arlen good perspective thanks a lot thank you arlen suderman chief commodities economist with intl fc stone well up next the latest 
ag equipment sales numbers. What are they telling us with the economy and the, the concerns in agriculture right now? Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers joins us next on AOA. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Network. For farm and ranch information you can depend on and the sources you can trust. Adams on Agriculture and the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Each month, we take a look at the ag equipment sales numbers, kind of give us an idea of, you know, a good barometer on the ag economy. Kurt Blades is with us, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, good to talk with you again. Much change in the numbers this month? Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, The month of April, as we kind of recall, when we talked in March, I said, boy, it's way too early to tell whether that uh, those bad numbers we saw in March were reflective of COVID-19 or something else. And as we look at the April numbers, the April numbers actually came back pretty strong. I think you got to look at those two months together to really get an indication of what the market is. And so when we look at year to date, we're kind of down across the board or down to flat across the board, but we saw some pretty strong upticks in April. Um, My members are telling me that that's probably, you know, a, a, more has to do with the timing of COVID-19 and the purchases. Uh, and, and so when you look at the two together, we've got a really good indication of what the market looks like today. Still better here than in Canada, right? Oh, boy. Canada continues to just be pretty pretty tough. Uh, across the board, all segments of equipment are, are down. And, uh, you know, whether that's under 40 horsepower, whether that's over over 100 horsepower, whether that's uh, articulated four-wheel drive, self-propelled combines, pretty much every one of those market segments is down, you know, double-digit percentages uh, for the year, and that's just pretty sad uh, the way we look at things in Canada. There are some bright spots here in the United States uh, that we do want to point to, and, and some of those being those, uh, you know, um, uh, under 40 horsepower has been a little bit of a surprise at how strong those have remained despite all of the uh, the signals of the economy going a little bit south, and and uh, you know I think you can look at row crop tractors. You know, sort of despite what's happening in the in the livestock and commodity markets, has has still held on. You know, um, okay. Uh, obviously, nothing to write home about, and we see some some pretty significant storm clouds out there. But I think as you sort of look at the overall. Uh, you know, equipment market, it's, it's, uh, it's down, but it, it, uh, you know, it, it's showing some signs of life out there. Kurt, overall, how do you see the industry? How is it handling uh, COVID-19 uh, from a production standpoint and a business standpoint out in the countryside? Uh, how has it impacted the industry and how are those in the industry dealing with it? Well, Mike, early on, um, you know, when this first started to become a become an issue, you know, our our uh, manufacturers all got together quickly, and you know, AEM was pretty helpful in in making sure that that uh, equipment was included as part of the uh, the essential declaration of of the ag sector. So that was pretty helpful. And then we've been working pretty closely to to make sure that best practices are being employed and, and that that employees are safe at all those factories, and so they're able to stay open. 
Um, you know, the, the good news is the way manufacturing of equipment happens is you can spread out a little bit. A lot of those factories have been set up in zone situations, so you can allow for the social distancing, you can allow for appropriate PPE, and then, uh, you know, working with the shifts so that they actually can work uh, to, to, you know, keep employees safe while, while maintaining the production. The other thing that we've been working pretty hard with is uh, manufacturers and dealers working together. Make sure that we get that uh, the, the supplies that are needed, whether it's parts or service, so that so that uh, you know farmers can get the crops in the field during this critical time. All right. So next month we'll get, I think, an even better picture, right? Because when we're we're taking a look then at the uh, at the at the May numbers. Then we have those three months of March, April, May. That should give us a kind of a real good picture of where we're at. I think that is absolutely correct. I mean, historically, April and May are the highest months of equipment sales in North America. Um, and, you know, again, we saw a nice got us back to some of our recovery that we that we saw the fall off in, in uh, at the end of March. So that's a good thing. When we look at the May numbers, I think we'll get a good indication of how much this pandemic is really having, how much effect this pandemic is really having on the equipment industry. I mean, we know it's going right. to have an impact. We still don't know to what extent just yet. Right. We'll know more a month from now. As always, Kurt, thanks for the update. We'll talk again next month and get those numbers, okay? You bet. You bet. Thanks for having me on. All right, take care, Kurt. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. I want to wrap up today with just some thoughts uh, from my perspective, what we're seeing right now and hearing uh, as we continue to all of us deal with COVID-19. It just kind of struck me that at a time in our lives when very little seems to be normal, unfortunately, we can leave it to our politicians to give us their form of normalcy. You know, they just couldn't seem to wait for the crisis to be over before returning to some of their normal ways. Finger pointing, second guessing, and grandstanding are all in full swing. You know, we may not have ball games to watch, but the political blame game, unfortunately, has not been canceled. It's going on. This being an election year makes it even worse, and both political parties are guilty. It seems the focus in Washington is more about winning the next election than winning the battle with the coronavirus. Certainly mistakes have been and continue to be made in dealing with this crisis. That happens when you're dealing with something unlike we have ever dealt with before. It's easy now to look back and say things should have been done differently. But even our medical experts have made mistakes. They made projections that have proven to be incorrect. And we continue now to hear differing opinions about what we need to do moving forward. Models and projections have been proven to be inaccurate as well. Making things even worse is the media's attempt to push political agendas instead of accurately informing the public. You know, the goal should be to safely reopen our economy and not to be pushing political agendas. Government assistance right now, while certainly needed, should only be for things directly related to COVID-19. This latest CARES proposal, the HEROES Act, provides for some of those areas of need, including agriculture, which I think you can make a direct correlation to COVID-19. But a lot of other things are in there that should not be. We shouldn't be bailing out states, for instance, that had financial problems before COVID-19. We need to all work together to to get us through this. 
It's becoming painfully evident that politics is a greater risk to our lives than any virus, and putting a mask over that problem won't help or make it go away. Be safe, everyone.